The year was 1988. Anahid Delakian is 18 years old and working at a sewing factory in the city of Stitak in Armenia. She was from a family of seven. They loved their home, their country, and their life. She had just begun to sew at her assigned machine. It was 11.41 in the morning when an unimaginable disaster struck. Anahid, tell us what happened. A very strong earthquake hit Armenia and the epicenter was Spitak, my hometown. So many people were getting ready to go for lunch, which would have been great because so many people's life would be safe had they been out and not in a building. I understand that it was a magnitude 6.8 earthquake that hit this Republic of Armenia and was considered to be one of the strongest earthquakes in a thousand years. Had you experienced earthquakes before, or was this the first time anything like this had ever happened to you? Actually, the day before the earthquake, I was visiting a friend, fortunately lost her, in an earthquake. We were in her house, and there was a little earthquake. Not little, enough that everything was shaking. That was the very first time in my life I experienced earthquake. I had just turned 18, but you can't compare that one to the next day. The next day's earthquake, I actually was standing in the middle of the building and Armenia was going through a turmoil. It was, Soviet Union was just falling apart. There was the conflict, which is continuing until today between Azerbaijan and Armenia and refugees were leaving and we were watching them near the window. And when that started, I somehow thought if I am at my station, I was working in a sewing factory to get some scholarship for college. And I believe if I was in my station, my family would be able to find me without understanding the magnitude of that, that there would be nothing left of the building except this crumbled area and a whole building that was nothing but a pile of rubble. And what floor and were you on, Anahid? Give, give us a sense of the setting. So the building was three floors and the roof. I was on the second floor, but I was very, very lucky because I was towards the center and both sides of the building went down. I was not part of the mixture, even though the third floor and the roof was on top of us. That is the reason that I survived. And I believe out of 250 people there, maybe 10% survived. Some of them survived with the spinal injuries that are on a wheelchair until now. Some lost uh, limbs. I was one of the luckiest one that, I yes, I was injured. I was airlifted to Russia for my treatment. Um, I had to struggle for several years. Up until now, I have, don't have full movements of my hands, my one hand particularly in my foot. However... I still have my limbs, and I'm living my life, and it's not holding me back. Well, one thing I know about you is you live your life to the fullest. <laughs> You're one of the best travelers I've ever oh, met. You could be a travel <laughs> agent. You've been so many wonderful places. But that day, do you remember that exact moment? What happened next? I remember, like, this morning. I remember running to my station, my, t- my chair, and don't know why, 
I still will never find out why. I decided I'm going to grab my purse. But I stood there. I froze there where I was working, where my chair was. When I turned one side, the big, large windows were falling down. It was kind of chaotic and people were up and down, falling. I couldn't figure it out. And then I turned the other side and one of the managers, who was a very tall man, very unusual for Armenian man, and I saw a cement block hitting him and him going flat. And (gasps) then everything came down. The reason I can tell you so clearly, because unfortunately, I was the one who told his family in the hospital that he passed because I saw it with my own eyes. But I couldn't understand the magnitude. None of us thought it was an earthquake. It was more of a, is this a bomb? What is happening to us? When it happened, when it crashed, I just thought, I just assumed I died. I just assumed I died. And then I think a lot of people were like me because after this noise, this crumble, like one, there was silence. And in the silence, you could hear everybody's scared sound, like, ah, kind of trying to see if they're alive, if they're dead. That, That was my feeling. So I'm basing this on my feeling. And then we really realized that some of us were alive. Automatically, everybody started screaming and crying. Then that passed, and a kind of calm came over us, realizing that we're not alone. And we started communicating with each other under the building. Did you ever lose consciousness? Did you just find yourself under the building? I'm assuming I was unconscious until I came back to it. I don't know. I cannot tell you that because from that point on, never did I lose my consciousness. I wish in some points I did. So not to remember certain things, but no, I never did from that point on. Initially, I don't know. But I just remember trying to make sound to see if I was alive and there were people there. And then we found out one of the gentlemen that worked with us was buried. His his torso was up. His legs were buried and he couldn't move. He was the one who he was our communicator, like with the world, you know. He would say, oh, I see cranes coming. I see people coming for rescue. So he would tell us whatever he saw until they rescued him. That happened 1141. I was calling and calling because I was not flat. I was hanging. My neck was bothering me, hurting me. I couldn't feel my one leg and my arm. The one leg I could use, there was a person underneath me, so it would hit her face. We all were facing death. We None of us thought we were going to come out of there until slowly rescuers, families were coming and taking someone out. And with each one that left, we lost more hope because obviously no one was looking for us. Somebody was calling my cousin's name and I was telling them, I'm like, if you know them, you know me too. And he says, honey, your brother is here looking for you. And I had already given up on that because this was 6 a.m. the next day. (gasps) And I was like, you know, if you're not going to help me, don't give me false hope. And I heard my brother's voice. And that, I think that was the only time I cried. 
and I cried. Oh <laughs> my goodness, Anahi, you said six a.m. That's hours. I was there seventeen hours. Seventeen hours. Did you so, talk to each other? Yes, those that we were did together? talk to each other. We, when we were underneath, we knew exactly who was losing their mind, who was dying, because of the voices. Some would say things that did not make any sense. There was a young girl with me. I was 18. She was 19. And she would get so frustrated with me. She would ask me, like, why can't you go and get me a glass of water? And I'm 18 years old. And with an attitude, I was like, are you stupid? If I go out, why would I come back? And this was the conversation we were having. And obviously, all of us had crush syndrome. We did not know. We did not understand what it would be. Every one of us that was pretty much after certain hours rescued from there had to be on dialysis, whoever survived. I know you were transported to a hospital in Russia, and you were there for six months, I believe you told me. Six months. I was transported to one of the hospitals in Armenia, in the capital city, Yerevan. The whole country had 11 dialysis machines, 80,000 patients. Oh, my. And each dialysis would take four or five hours, and they did not have enough help. One of the doctors approached my sister and said, if you have any hope, it's by airlifting her to Russia. And my sister did not know what to do, but she had no other choice. I had lost my father. They already knew. I didn't know. They knew that my father did not make it. And um, my sister, being a nurse, she was able to, I don't miracle, find her diploma in that chaos because we lost our house and fly with me on a first plane that came from Russia to rescue us. It was a military plane and they took us to Moscow. I was taken to this amazing university hospital. They were able to save my arms, my legs, plus start my kidneys working again. At that point, I had two cardiac arrests in Armenia. But when I arrived in Russia, I had another cardiac arrest in Russia. They were right there. They were right on top of that. And I'm again, I'm one of the luckiest one that I don't have a residue. At least I don't think I have a residue. Some people think I do. And your family. Let's talk about what happened to them. So my two sisters are teachers. My one sister was sick at home and my brother was at home. So my brother was able to jump. But my sister was buried. We had radiators at that time, and our foot was stuck on a radiator that was burning. And he noticed the movement. He just measured it where her head would be. He dragged her out of the rubble. My sister was safe. She broke her ribs, but no one paid attention. That was not an injury at that point. My mom was in the middle of the room ironing, and she, my dad walked in. He was on vacation. He had just come home the night before. He stood there. My mom said that he looked at my brother and sister. He had one sleeper on, one sleeper off. He literally just walked into the house. And the central stone fell behind his head and he died instantly. My brother could not save him and my mom could not do anything. My sister was in a lot of pain. So next thing, when the dust settled, they realized where I was working all the way there was flat. So my mother just screamed my name and my brother came after me. 
So my brother technically was there looking for me for 15 hours before he found me. Oh, so Anahid, are many of your family yes. still there? My two sisters live in Armenia. My one sister temporarily is here helping her daughter with the child. And my brother is in between Armenia and Russia. He's working in Russia, but housing and everything is in Armenia. My one sister being a teacher, she was able to get all her students out. And she was able to walk out of there. Just minor cuts and stuff. But my oldest sister, who had two young children, they lost their house. They both jumped out of their work and they ran to their kids' school, finding them holding each other's hand and standing outside. Oh, and um, they were four and six. A miracle. At that time. A miracle. miracle. When I say we're one of the luckiest ones is whenever, even now, whenever I go to the cemetery, the tombstones are covered with people. They are families that lost five, six, seven people from their family. Um, we had to learn to not even cry, not even to mourn my father because... At that point, it was embarrassing to even recognize that. You mean because so many people had because so many worse things happening children. to them or lost children? They lost children. They lost. There were families that the mother, father, and two children were dead. Mm. So, and they're buried right next to, uh, to him. So you can't even raise your voice and recognize your pain. We used to always go every December 7th, we would go to the cemetery quietly, make sure nobody notices us to come back. In a way, my father was 58 years old, but he had a life. There were families that lost kindergarten and young, first, second grade, any, any age children. It was very hard to even be emotional about our own loss because the whole city was mourning. And it was a generation that lost everything. My generation, I, I was 18. That generation completely lost everything. There were weddings that were happening quiet, no gowns, nothing. Life just happened quietly. They would move on, but nothing was done to celebrate anything for at least five, six years. I can imagine, uh, and I understand that really you were right in the epicenter of it. We were right in the epicenter. The second largest and third largest cities of Armenia were affected. 30% of the country was affected by it. I don't think in a history they've had earthquakes happen in a larger population that more people have probably died. But in a population like that, percentage-wise, I don't think anything like this has happened. And the date was December 7th, 1988. Pearl December Harbor 7th, yes. yes, Pearl Harbor Day. And you and I saw each other on that day. And that's what yes. got me thinking about talking to you about this. But you shared some interesting thoughts about when you come upon December 7th that maybe you could share with us your thinking about that day. So December 7th, every five years, like even years, the 5th, 10th, 15th, whatever, anniversaries, I always go to Armenia and celebrate it with my family. Even if it's for five days, I go there and come. My mom lives there. My mom is 92 years old. And it definitely brightens her day when she sees me. Because mm -hmm. after all the tragedy, I was the good news. I did survive. I did fight. 
it was such a handicapped environment and I was a handicapped and no matter where I looked everything was sad I would get on a bus and 60 70 year old women would get up and say honey you sit down and it was so embarrassing for me everybody knew I was a handicapped but also my environment was so sad the reason I moved to United States was because people would not look at my scars both my arms are covered in scars, my legs. No one paid attention to me. And that made me feel comfortable. Then mm-hmm. I was not the handicap. I was just a regular person living my life. So I still go back to Armenia on December 7th. But initially, I get up every 6th of December. I go to bed like tears in my eyes with very uncomfortable feeling, even though it's been 34 years. But then when I wake up December 7th, it's a completely different day. It's my rebirth. I celebrate all the way through. I do everything I can do on that day to kind of to appreciate my life. And I do appreciate my life. There is not a day I don't think every time I overcome a challenge, it's a pride. Because when I started walking on my own was a pride. When I started using my hands. Today I do nails for a living. And it's all requiring my hands to move. And that to me is celebration. So I do celebrate that day because, yes, I lost a lot of people. But it's my rebirth. It's my day. And I I guess I refuse to be sad. But you also have a spirit of enjoying life. And as I mentioned earlier, you're quite a traveler. Um, You've been all over the place and done a lot of very, very interesting (laughs) things. And you have... A fantastic husband and some boys um, and, a, and a, be- a beautiful, beautiful life. I've been given a second chance. I can sit there and complain about things, but that's not mine. It happens for a reason and it should go for a reason. <laughs> you have a chance. You're alive. You choose whether you're going to be sad or you choose you're going to be happy. It's up to you. And if you've seen the other side, it's not as pretty. You know, on a our program, Too Tough to Fail is about personal resilience, about bravery, about facing things that are unexpected. And you just handle all of it with such grace and you're beautiful inside and out. Is there one particular aspect of this experience that is more memorable than any of it? I remember a story how my brother went out and laid in the middle of the street so he could take a carjack to lift the last cement block off of me. So I have seen power of love on my family side. I often think about what the other people mean to me because I was living and their loved one was dying. Was that power of their love that was making them think that? So I've always have been torn about that. Mm. Can love make you do bad things? Can love make you do excellent things? I don't know what I would do if it was my child. I have always been amazed how much love people can give. And I'm not talking about mine, how much I got. Strangers devoted their life to me. I also saw people getting angry based on that love. It's a very mixed situation because I can't remember the good without remembering the bad. I can't remember the bad without remembering Mm. the good. But the most amazing thing that got me appreciate my life, little thing, this is a very tiny thing. And nobody would understand the power of this. When I was in a hospital, I could not walk. And 
my kidneys had just started working. Finally, they're starting to restart me so I can walk. And my one sister, who was only 26 years old, who stayed in a hospital for six months to take care of me, walked in with a pair of high heels. And she said, this is for you to wear. Uh, and that and I've was, seen you wear high heels. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I know you do. The hope that she had for me, the hope that she had, I could barely stand. And she got me a pair of high heels. I was able to overcome everything and wear high heels. But everyone would look at my sister, cry, and shake their heads. Like, what is she thinking? People that were in the hospital with me, they would look at me and say, you're very lucky you move away. But it wasn't about me moving away. It was about me wanting to live a different life. Mm-hmm. And you've been in the but United States a long time now. I've been here 30 years. It definitely changed me. Being away, being away from the situation, from the area, it definitely helps you to overcome that faster. I would think so. And living in the United States... It's a very, very different place to live. We're almost left alone. Nobody feels sorry for you here. There, everybody felt sorry for me. A lot of people did not see the point of me surviving. Some of the places, like in Armenia, you don't have to be politically correct. So people would tell you, like, what is the point of your life? Again, when I say it's the biggest moment in my life, when my sister walked in with high heels and said, this is for you. I have never been angry in my life about the earthquake. That is one thing I hope I never lose. I don't think you will, Anahid. You know, you know that's one thing um, that's a gift that you're giving to other people is the power of positive thinking and the power of seeing you know, a glass uh, half full rather than half empty. I just so admire what you've done and how you have worked through the challenges that you've had. So I really appreciate you sharing this story with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. The threat of earthquakes in the Middle East continues. In early 2023, a 7.5 magnitude earthquake killed tens of thousands. Although Turkey and Syria were the countries primarily impacted, Armenia was too. If you'd like to help earthquake victims, please contact AO, that's A-Y-O, which provides support to children and families in need throughout their country. You can learn more about them by visiting www.weareao.org.